Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Greetings and peace. I hope everybody is blessed and in a good state wherever you may be as you receive this podcast. This is Path and Present, and I am Baraka Blue. This episode is with Michael Harun Sujik. Uh, it's his second time on the podcast. Last time, uh, months ago, was with him and Peter Sanders. Peter is a great photographer, and they're old friends and came up in the same community, Sufi community. So I highly recommend you check that out if you haven't listened to that one. And I highly recommend that you check out his book called Signs on the Horizon. The book is a wonderful book about Harun's meetings with extraordinary individuals, particularly uh, spiritual masters and Sufi saints. Harun has had a really unique journey in life in which he's traveled all over the Muslim world and met some of the most illuminated beings uh, of the 20th and 21st centuries. And many of them have passed on from the world. So he, he does a great job of telling about them and his time with them. He lived in the Middle East for, for decades, and now he resides in Turkey. Yeah, so we recorded this podcast in Turkey. But if you, do, if you haven't read that book, Signs on the Horizons, I highly recommend it. Um, but this podcast, we spoke about his upcoming book, which is about Toba, repentance or returning. Um, really, it's about people who have had transformations in their life, people that were kind of far from the path and then had a radical transformation and turned to their creator and took the spiritual path. So it's really a beautiful book, and he was kind enough to let me get an advanced copy, not of the whole thing, but I read a few chapters. And uh, mashallah, he's a wonderful storyteller, and there's just some really beautiful stories in that book. But yeah, alhamdulillah, it's an honor to, to, to introduce this podcast with Harun because one of my intentions with doing Path and Present was to preserve the stories of what's going on globally as far as uh, the community of La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, because there's so much negativity out there. I wanted to magnify some of the, the beauty and beyond others in, in other communities that are doing good things. But particularly, I felt like we need to preserve the stories of our elders and those who preceded us and those who have you know laid the path for us. And Harun, as well as many of the people who came out of the community with him, which was so influential, and many of our elders and our teachers um, and our most beloved brothers and sisters came out of that community. And uh, Sidi Harun is very special, mashallah, and he's a great storyteller. And it's just an interesting anecdote that actually the arguably the most influential uh, Muslim scholar in America actually took his shahada uh, through Harun, and that's Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. So Sidi Harun has been around... <laughs> been around the block and been around the world many times. And so he's someone with great insight and great perspective. And also, it's not just that he's been around the world, but it's that he's been around the path and he's been on the path. And so it's not only that he's journeyed outwardly all over the world, 
which he has and, and met many amazing individuals, but it's really about the inward journey and the insights that he's gleaned um, for many, many years on the spiritual path. So it was a blessing to sit with him in his home in Istanbul. And that is the conversation that follows. Uh, please support Path and Present by visiting our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pathandpresent. There you can support monetarily. And in addition to that, check it out on iTunes, subscribe, write, rate, and like. And other than that, just send us your love and light. All right, y'all. Peace. So I'm grateful that you allowed me to read some excerpts of your new book. And, and I'm grateful that you read them and had the patience to read them. Um, and I loved your previous book. And of course, we talked about it a bit on your podcast uh, or on the previous podcast episode with you and uh, Peter Sanders. With you both doing these kind of parallel projects, documenting your experiences, you as a writer and him as a photographer, with the great men and women that you've met. Mm-hmm. By great, we're talking about spiritual masters, Sufi masters, who, you know, you were blessed to meet and live with, and many of whom have since passed on from this world. So many of them are great Sufi masters of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that book and, and the conversation that we have the conversations that we've had about it. And your new work, I want to discuss a little bit because in many ways, I feel like they're related, Hmm. but I feel like the ways they're related isn't explicit. I feel like, but I feel like in writing it, that that it's in some way a follow-up. And I'd like to hear about for you, the connection to those. Yeah. Well, I started, uh, thinking about the concept of tauba, which is, I think, misunderstood. And if you read Al-Ghazali on tauba and read some of the shiuk on tauba, it's a formidable subject. It's it's a, a bit scary for people because they have to then take in, they have to sort of um, take in the fact that they've done something wrong right. and they have to correct it and that there are consequences, that life is consequential. Uh, and Toba is usually translated as repentance. As repentance. Um, and what I discovered from going around different parts of the world and reading from the previous book was that there were many young people with really beautiful souls and beautiful intentions and good actions and so on who were racked with guilt or who lacked um, sort of a fundamental self-confidence. And I think that it's because of the prevailing kind of understanding of religion that's been, um, that's that's dominated the thinking of Muslims, um, which is more of a fundamental, um, um, for want of a better word, kind of a Salafi reformist religion, which focuses on, or con- in, in in more extreme cases, conflates sin with kufr, mm. with unbelief, mm. and it's not. It's absolutely not true. 
um, there's a pro, there's a there's a um, there's a hadith uh, of the Prophet Muhammad He said, if you did not sin, Allah would destroy you and replace you by another people who would commit sins, ask for God's forgiveness, and He would forgive them. And this is the process of repentance or tawbah. Tawbah is our default setting as human beings. We're always in a state of wrong action. And even the saints are, are making tawbah all the time. Why? They're making tawbah from forgetfulness to remembrance. Ordinary people make tawbah from a wrong action to correcting that action. Um, so it, it's uh, what I found was that you, Muslims have many Muslims have been paralyzed by this idea that they're that they're that, that they're doomed to perdition, or that because they've done wrong things, they don't have access to uh, higher spiritual aspirations. Mm-hmm. But if you go back into the old ancient literature uh, of uh, Fariduddin Attar, the hagiographies of mm-hmm. Nuaimi and, and all of these great um, early texts, uh, about 35% of all the stories about the saints involve serious tawbah. Mm-hmm. Fudayl ibn Iyad was, was, a, was a murderer and a thief, a bandit, and became one of the greatest saints of his time. Uh, Bishr al-Hafi was a, um, was a, 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 a drunkard, he was an alcoholic, a degenerate alcoholic, who became such a great saint that Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal would go to him repeatedly and sit in his company to learn from him. And these are, these are not fantasy stories. These are real people that existed. Uh, in the hagiographies, you don't get the detail of how that transformation happened exactly. Mm-hmm. It sounds sort of almost miraculous. But we have, so what I've done is I've taken these stories. Uh, Habib al-Ajami was a loan shark, what in our time would be called a loan shark. He was a nasty, um, greedy, unpleasant man who became one of the greatest awliya of his time, one of the greatest saints of his time, who even surpassed his master, Hassan al-Basra. Uh, and and this is all written. I mean, he was a great, great saint, but he started off in a very you know, as a very terrible kind of person. And you know, one of the secrets of uh, that we sometimes overlook of the stories of the Sahaba was that these people were ordinary people. They were sinners like everybody else. They did, you know, they had an ordinary life, and they became great, great saints through the tra- transformation uh, of the, being in the presence of the Prophet Muhammad, والسلام, of following the Sunnah, of, of, of understanding the Qur'an and acting out on the wisdom and revelation of, from Allah. And this is something we, we have to understand, that we have access now to divine knowledge, that it's not, you know, anyone who tells you you don't is misleading you. You you absolutely have access to divine knowledge. You have access to what we call 
in, in on the path ma'arifa. Everybody has it. The fact that people don't attain it is simply because they're not interested enough or devoted enough to to pursue that path, which can be a long one. And uh, you know, we're we're now in an age where everything is instant, like weekend retreats where you have spiritual enlightenment. You know, from thir- from Friday to Sunday, suddenly you're 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 enlightened, or you know, instant nirvana, instant breakfast, instant everything. So we're 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 not used to the the kind of you know long haul um, that's required. Uh, for the purification of the heart, but it's there, and those people who really uh, want it can attain it. And so, but part of the, the, the one of the, the at the the very beginning of the path is tauba, and I felt that it was really important to explore that for myself personally, but also for um, for for other sort of young people who are struggling on the path because they you know I've I've talked to people they think that they're a- absolutely doomed mm-hmm. that there's no access uh, because they've been told that wow you you know when you were in high school you sinned or if you didn't bend your toe properly in in you know your prayer isn't isn't acceptable I mean these these things are absolutely happening um, all over the world now people are misguided. Um, and they misunderstand the nature of, of, of the mercy of Allah. My teacher, Sayyid Omar Abdullah, who was a great scholar, uh, radiallahu anhu, he told me once, he said, if you read the Quran carefully, you will see that most people, he didn't say most Muslims, he said most people go to heaven because of Allah's immense, overwhelming compassion. That doesn't mean they, they, don't, they won't have trouble getting there. But Allah is merciful. Allah arhamar rahimin. Allah arhamar rahimin. Allah arhamar rahimin. And so, also, I like, I think what you, what you said at the beginning is really important because, you know, I think a lot of modern people um, struggle with the idea of sin repentance, uh, hellfire, you know, these things, these terms are difficult. And part of it, I think, is, you know, certain terms have certain meanings in the Christian West, etc. But I like what you said about Toba is not just for the sinners, but that Toba you know, the Prophet himself, sallallahu alayhi wa you know, said astaghfirullah 70 times a day. And the awliya, the salihin, the righteous ones, they're the ones saying tawbah the most. And there's different levels. So it's all it's all about turning and returning and yeah. turning and returning back to our source and our essence and our creator who's closer to us than our jugular veins and just being in a state of remembrance, and when there's a momentary lapse, back to another state of remembrance, and when there's a momentary lapse. And for some of us, those lapses are, are quite large and, 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 and result in specific actions. But for those who are, you know, advanced on the path, their toba is more refinement of awareness and consciousness and presence at each moment. And I remember reading a Sufi text 
you know, commenting on that hadith of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu and saying that seventy times a day he was ascending to a higher station, yes. and so he was said out of adab, out of just courtesy to his to to Allah, he said astaghfirullah for the station below once he attained the higher station. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea of like piercing the veils of consciousness. So that totally shifts the idea of, you know, repentance is something that the sinners do. And then the religious people, they're good. They don't have to do that. It's not like that at all. Not at all. Uh, Sahal ibn Abdullah Tustari, who was one of the great awliya of, our, of, of Islam, he wrote that Tawbah is a duty incumbent upon a human being every moment, whether of the elect or common folk, whether obedient to God or disobedient. Tawbah is therefore our default setting. You know, mm. For an ordinary person, uh, sin is usually a gross sin. You know, you've done something wrong, you know you've done it wrong, uh, and you have to change. And so tauba is the turning of the heart and the change of the action. Uh, when someone asked Dunul al-Misr, uh, one of our great saints, about repentance, he answered that the common people repent from sins, whereas the elect repent from forgetfulness. So the sin of a saint is to forget Allah for a second. And we aspire to being in that form of tawbah so that we're constantly turning and constantly turning. So the heart, it's a dynamic that drives uh, uh, our lives, you know, and it, and it should be something that people embrace and not be afraid of. The, the problem is that the, the term repentance from the Christian West is... is it, it, on the one hand, it has a kind of a Mennonite severity of absolute, you know, you repent of your sins or go to, you're going to go to hell, mm-hmm. something like that, um, which is not untrue. But uh, on the other hand, the Catholic version of repent of your sins is to go into confession, confess, then you can go out and do something wrong again, and then you go back and confess so that you have this sort of... Um, uh, loophole that you can get get out of, you know, and and it's those the, the, those are some of the things that I'm, I'm I'm dealing with, and I think the book may also be enjoyable to read because it it talks about people who have done some pretty terrible things, but who've come through, um, and they've suffered the consequences, but they've come through, and um, and you know. Also, the, the the stratagems of the of the of the ego. You know, I mean, I was driving with a, a young Muslim who had just converted to Islam. I was in Arizona, and this really beautiful blonde woman, you know, sort of drove up beside us at a stoplight in in a convertible. And this young guy was hanging his head out, and sort of gawking at her, you know, with his mouth open practically. And I said, Abdul Jalil, I said. The, uh, the Prophet said, there's no fault in the first glance, but you don't have any right to the second glance. And he said, that's okay, I'm still on my first glance. <laughs> you know, it's a long glance. You know, it's, uh, people are in, they're in, and you have to stop being um, 
puritanical about these things. Mm. People do wrong things. Everybody does. Right. Everybody. There isn't anyone uh, on earth that doesn't have have um, something to make tauba from. Mm. And one of the things that you see in the great Aulia or Arifin that, that we've been blessed in meeting is how humble they are. They're incredibly, incredibly humble. And uh, well, the, the imam of, of Ibn, uh, Muhammad ibn Habib in Meknes, um, one of the fukara sat with him, and he was all he was doing was saying, Astaghfirullah, Astaghfirullah. He was a great, great salih, one of the salihin, very pure. He had no, no external life other than study and teaching and leading the prayer and so on. And yet he was constantly saying, Astaghfirullah, Astaghfirullah, with you know, real sincerity. Mm-hmm. So what is that? You know what it what it, and and it wasn't in agony or anything, but it was just because you he he existed even. You know, he's uh, Rabbi Al Adawiya asked for forgiveness for existing for her for being separate from Allah. Yes. You know, thinking so, you exist as a as a separate I yes, than the divine exactly, I. and that's what you you do tauba from all of that, mm. but you first have to start with where you are. And one of the sections in the book is called God Finds You Wherever You Are. And this comes from a very dear friend of mine who's, who graciously allowed himself to be interviewed and is, is in the book because he came from some pretty depraved environments and, and, and actions and so on. And uh, I, you know, I mean, I'll t- tell you his, he, he, his, this, this, friend of mine who's in the book and you have to read the book when it comes out give us the story but you know he he learned his islam from his hash dealer in morocco and the the boy the boy who was selling hashish who was by any estimation a criminal uh at the same time when my friend would ask you know what this means or what that means this was in morocco he would say, this is what our prophet did. And I said, this is our religion. He didn't say, this is our custom. Mm. He always referred to Islam in some way. So when he would see a funeral prayer, he would say, this is, this is how we honor our dead as Muslims, and so on and so forth. So he, he gradually came into Islam through someone who, you know, by any, by any normal estimation was like a, an, you know, an, a scoundrel, or a, mm-hmm. you know, an, a, a, you know, an unsavory character, mm-hmm. um, and this is how Allah guides people. So part of this, the, the thing is, uh, the, the 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 theme of the book is really how Allah guides people th- from one condition to a, a, another condition, which is better, and so it's it's. I found it very fascinating to to. Um, to, to interview so many different kinds of people. I mean, I've interviewed doctors, I've interviewed criminals, I've interviewed um, people who were already very, very pure, but who became, through life changes, became much closer to Allah through a spiritual path or, or, or of that sort. And, I th- and the, the underlying purpose of the book really is 
is to give people hope. They need to, the Muslims need to, to know that they have, they, that, that Allah wants them to succeed um, in, in, the, in the path. That it's not a, you know, madness. I've met a, quite a few mad people over, over the course of my life. And I've noticed that, that, that one of the common characteristics is that they believe that the entire universe is conspiring against them. Mm-hmm. And to me, sanity is when you understand that the entire universe is conspiring for you, which is the re- actual reality. And, and um, so it's, Muslims need to understand that. They look on the outside of things and they see how dark and terrible everything seems to be particularly in the headlines and you read social media and, you know, we're inundated with bad news all the time. And there are problems, but it's also because the world is passing. And this is something that we need to raise our children. We need to teach them about the world. We need to help them get through the world. But we also need to, to teach them that the world is evanescent. It's 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 transient. You, you, you You're here, you're five years old, then you're 15 years old, then you're 50 years old, then you're 80 years old. And it, and it happens much quicker than anyone would like to think about think of it. I mean, between the ages of 20 and 30, it seems like a really long time. But between 30 and 40, it goes real fast, 50 and 60, even faster, and so on, until you're at the end of your life. So there's a, there's a continuum that people have to understand and we need to start teaching our children these things um, when they're really young, uh, in a nice way. But, but the world, part of the the, uh, the trouble people have is that they're so attached to the world. So, um, and that also yeah. like reminds me, like Toba in it in it in its essence is not about guilt and shame. It's about love. Absolutely. When you love someone, then you you want to turn to them. You want to please them. You want to serve them. You want their happiness. You know what I mean? And so I think that's a big piece too, is it? there's, you know, like you say, a lot of people wrapped with guilt and shame and, you know, in, like you say, living in this world where it's this intense, you know, and that's one of the beautiful hadith of the prophet, who said this world and everything in it, is cursed, except for dhikr Allah, mm. and that which is an aid thereto, mm. that which assists you to remember Allah. And an interest, you know, some people hear that and say, oh, the whole world is cursed, it's all damned. But if you reflect on that hadith, the, the other way to say it is nothing in this world is cursed, if you remember God by it. Yeah. And so it's really the common denominator is you as the individual, as a subject, like, Am I remembering through this? Is this? Am I seeing this? This world of forms as ayat as signs to remind me to my source, my origin, my original state, my my fitra, or am I being pulled by the intoxicating power of the world to forget that this is all a play? Well, it's like it's not seeing the forest for the trees. Uh, Muslims get involved in like 
you know, their identity and community and, um, you know, he's doing this right and he's doing this wrong and he said this and she said that and, and they get lost and, you know, they, they're lost among the trees, but the forest is dhikr Allah. Uh, Muli Abdul Salam ibn Mashish, who was the, the sheikh and the spiritual master of Imam Abu Hassan al-Shazali, who was the founder of one of the great, great um, uh, traditions of Islam in North Africa. He said, nothing is acceptable to Allah except dhikr Allah. So what does that mean? It means that if you're praying and you're thinking about uh, what you're going to eat, you know, at, for lunch, you're not remembering Allah. And so, in, in, in fact, your prayer is not really acceptable. It's not, nothing is acceptable. If you're fasting and you're not remembering Allah, then you're just getting hungry. Mm. If you're making hajj and you're not remembering Allah, then you're, you, you might as well, you know, stay at home and watch TV. I mean, there, there's, so remembrance of Allah is basically everything in Islam and all, but then the, 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 the ultimate remembrance of Allah is the Salat. And so, you know, the, 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 the teachers who teach the, the, these, the, 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 the practical aspects of, of, of Islamic spirituality, what they're aiming to do is to, to build the heart so that the high points of, of each day are in fact the Salat, are in fact the remembrance from the Quran, are in fact, so in, instead of just getting through it because we have to do the prayer, we do it because we want to do the prayer. And sometimes it takes an enormous amount of, of, of practice to get to that point in, in time so that we're not just, you know, going through the motions, which is what m- many people do, unfortunately. We all, we all fall into that trap of we're so caught up in the world, and then we stop and we pray, and we maybe for a few seconds we remember Allah, and the rest of the time we're just getting through the, the obligatory. But the idea is really that you're entire, that every breath is, is filled with remembrance, and the it's 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 not it's something that that doesn't distract you from living your life as well it it actually enhances your life but it takes it takes time it's also something my teacher sayyid omar abdallah uh, was told by his sheikh uh, habib omar bin sumaid who was one of the great great saints of of east africa Um, he used to tell him, the later, the better. And I think this is something that Muslims have kind of lost sight of. Um, These things happen, they don't happen, I mean, they can happen when you're young, when a person is young, especially people who are very, very, very pure. They can have enormous openings, um, from Allah, there's nothing, you know, preventing that in certain cases. But in most cases, people are, you know, people experience these things when they get older. Uh, if they've taken a path, 
and if they're patient on the path, and then suddenly things start sinking in, mm. and it takes time. It's like the harvest after yeah. the yoga. And I've noticed this, and, and unfortunately I've also seen people who they try and they try and they try, and then they give up, you know, like just before the, t- the moment that they could be having an opening. And, and this is something I think people need to, they need to be made aware of, that these things are real, that they, they really can happen, and, and they do happen to people. Um, and, and one of the problems is that people who have had openings in the heart where they, they, they perceive the, 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 the rahma of Allah, they perceive the qayyumiyati of Allah, the, the, that Allah is, pervades everything, um, they don't talk about it. So, you know, people have gotten to the point where they don't realize that these things even exist anymore. And this is, you know, one of the things that we try to encourage people to do is to sit with men who have um, a spiritual authority, uh, who have the, the have mastered the deen al-ihsan, um, who are muhsin. Um, we we it's it's you know it's very very important. One of the awliya had a dream of Rasulullah and he was at, he, he asked he asked the messenger he said ya rasulullah what is the best thing that you can do in this life and rasulullah said to sit with a wali allah with a friend of allah for as long as it takes to milk a goat or boil an egg being in con- in contact with people who are deeply pure uh, has a a profound uh, effect on the soul. It's very healing. Uh, You know, people talk about the evil eye, you know, that there's there's an evil eye. But my my sheikh, uh, Habiba Ahmed, Mashur al-Haddad, he said there's also a good eye. And this is what these people have. They have the good eye. They look at you and you feel better. They, they make you better. And to tie it in with the, this book, I mean, they make, in, in their presence, you make toba. They turn your heart. I mean, yeah. it's, it's amazing that just yeah. being in the presence of a person like yeah. that can really alter your, your wants, your, yeah. your, your intentions, your, your behavior, your thoughts, mm. and just turn your heart. Mm. Well, I have a, uh, one of the subjects of, of, uh, of the book who, who I devote a chapter to is a, is a wonderful man named Martin Askew. Martin was, uh, was a gangster. I mean, he was a serious, he was from gangster royalty in East London. And one of the things that transformed him was reading the hadith of one of the Sahaba approaching the Prophet, and asking for counsel. And the Prophet said, do not be angry. So he came back to him and said, well, give me some more counsel. He said, do not be angry. And he kept saying, do not be angry. And Martin, who had, his whole life had been driven by rage and anger and 
pride and arrogance and all these things. He, he was stunned by this. And because he realized that his whole life, he'd go out angry, ready to fight. He said he used to like to get in brawls, you know, fist fights. Uh, his, his cousin was, uh, was a famous gangster named Lenny McLean, who was called the governor. And he was a bare knuckle fighter. He was a really, really tough enforcer in, 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 the, in the sort of underworld. And Martin always looked up to him. But what happened was when Martin became a Muslim, uh, and his name is Muhammad Saleh now, uh, he would go out with the intention of not being angry. Once he, re- he, re- you know, he read this hadith, he would go out and say, okay, I'm not going to be angry. And it worked. He, he just said, okay, I'm not going to be angry. I'm not getting angry. I'm not getting angry. And it transformed him, just that one hadith, that one, and that's a tawbah. And then what Martin did was he went round to um, everybody that he, that he had hurt, that he could find, and he asked them to forgive him. And he said that <clears throat> there was one guy who had raped a woman, and he'd gone to prison for it. But this is considered to be a really uh, horrible thing, uh, thing to do by the underworld, by the criminals. They think that's a, that's a horrible thing. And this guy turned up in Martin's neighborhood. This was before he was a Muslim. And he, he beat him nearly to death. He left him you know, like a, a pool of blood and, and left him. Years later, after he had become a Muslim, he saw the guy and he approached him and the man was with his daughter. And when he saw it, he went white and was, you know, thought he was going to be beaten again. And Martin came up and said, I'm, I'm not going to do nothing. No, I just want you to forgive me for what I had done to you. you know? And the man burst into tears and wept, you know. This is the, you know, this is, is the dynamic of Islam. It's, it's, it's going from one thing to another thing and changing, you know. And it's not even an effort. It's like something that you have to do. Um, and, and it's these stories, there, there's so many different stories and they're all incredibly beautiful because they are, they're all different. Everybody has a, a different um, experience. One of the common threads, though, through the book is, is death, is the confrontation in one way or another with death. Uh, and in my own case, it was, it was like a metaphorical thing. It was very much like the experience of Ramana Maharshi, where he, he, he had a contemplative experience of death, like he knew he was going to die. And I had something similar. But other people have been confronted, like Martin, Martin was beaten nearly to death, which is what changed his the direction of his life. So everybody has that that um, uh, that experience um, in one way or another. So that it, it, it's it's a, it, I'm hoping that the book will have a good effect on people and and uh, um, give them hope and encouragement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. You structured it by interviewing people and having them tell their story, and then basically each chapter is a story of an individual. Is that- 
Yeah, pretty much. And what I've done is I've mixed the contemporary stories with stories from the ancient books. So I retell the story of Fudail ibn Iyad, of Habib al-Ajami, of uh, Bishr al-Hafi, uh, Malik ibn Dinar. Uh, and they, they all have stories. And, and it's extraordinary. If you look back in the, in the literature, so many of these people had, and they were, they were nominally Muslims, but not practicing. And this is back in the mid, mid, Middle Ages. So, um, uh, you know, the, so I, I, I mix the stories. They're, they're from different, and from different countries. One of my favorite stories is of, of a wonderful man named Hafiz Ismail, who is um, a Turkish Hafiz of Quran, but he's blind. And he has, he had, he has a wonderful, he, he memorized the Quran at the age of 10, ran away from home to um, learn Quran in Istanbul and was rejected by every Quran school and left Islam because of it. He was so bitter as a boy and he lived on the streets of Istanbul for four years, uh, you know, homeless and, and, and then he got back into it. And his story is, is just is a beautiful story because he's a genius. He's an extraordinary man. But what he went through as a, you know, he was born blind. Um, he, he, uh, his, his parents died when he was a, a small child. So he was an orphan raised by very harsh brothers uh, who resented the fact that he was, you know, he was in, incapacitated. And, um, and that ended up on the streets. And now he lives a wonderful life, you know travels, you know, his wife is a, an extraordinary woman, and, uh, and, and he has great wisdom. Uh, and this, this came, you know, he said if, if he had practiced Islam, if he continued to practice Islam uh, in the way, in the conventional way, which was all the hellfire and brimstone variety, he said, I probably would have left Islam. But, he, you know, he, he, he met... Uh, one of the great um, sages of, of, of Istanbul, uh, Muzaffar Effendi, uh, who taught in a, in a very casual way, you know, through suhbat. He was, as my friend Shams Friedlander said, he's, he was a walking suhbat. You know, he, he, he was constantly talking, telling stories, you know, giving wisdom, you know, making people laugh, making jokes, but bringing people into the, the this this uh, the spiritual nar- narrative, and the, this is what transformed uh, Hafiz Ismail as a young man, and um, so there are all kinds of stories. I mean, it's 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 a lot of it's been a lot of fun to do, to to work on, because uh, people people are interesting. Uh, everybody's interesting. What I've discovered was that most most of the best stories were from people who were a bit older uh, and sometimes not a bit, a lot older because they, they, they were able, they've been able to contextualize the story and to, to, to have a perspective that a younger person who comes into Islam, they can't articulate these things. They haven't had a chance to kind of absorb 
what happened. That would, cer- would certainly be have been my case when I was young. I didn't really know what was, you know, I didn't know what I was getting myself into when I started practicing Islam. So, um, <clears throat> and just that distance gives you a vantage point. I mean, just if yeah. you're looking too closely at a painting, you can't really yeah. see what's going on. You have yeah. to step back. and just, then Yeah, you step back. And then and, and what happens for those of us from the West, we're asked about these things all the time because people are interested, like, how did, you, how did that happen and so on. So you have to tell the story and then retell it. You get kind of better at it. <laughs> what you have to be careful of is that you don't start embellishing mm-hmm. and, and making up stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, most people don't do that. You know, they... So do you have, is there a, a story that comes to mind that you can maybe tell us from the book or, or summarize or just to give us a little teaser? So this is, um, uh, I've chosen this because it's real short. Um, the title of the chapter is A Close Call. I heard this story many years ago from an African-American Muslim. I lost touch with him a long time ago and have no way of verifying it, but it has the ring of truth, so I'm going out on a limb here and relating it. A young man from New York had just embraced Islam. He hadn't shaken off his bad habits and was still vulnerable to the temptations of the neighborhood. The biggest temptation of all was a beautiful young woman, the hottest girl in the hood. She never gave him the time of day. Then, as luck would have it, after he had entered Islam, he met her on the street, and she was all over him. He couldn't help himself. He ended up in her apartment, in her bedroom, in her bed. Suddenly, buck naked, under the sheets, seduced by the hottest girl he'd ever seen, he came to his senses. A wave of fear passed through him. He leapt out of bed. I can't do this. I can't do this. Astaghfirullah, I'm a Muslim. I can't do this, he cried out as he jumped into his clothes and fled the girl's bedroom and apartment full of remorse and fear of God. One year later, he was walking in the neighborhood. From a distance, he spied a young Muslim he'd never seen before, all in white, head covered in hijab. As he passed her, he greeted her, As-salamu alaykum. She replied, Wa alaykum salam. And then he did a double take. She was the girl he'd run away from, the hottest girl in the hood. He stopped. You've become a Muslim, he exclaimed. How did you find Islam? She told him, No man had ever run out on me the way you did. And when you cried out, I can't do this, I'm a Muslim, I had to find out what it was in your religion that was more powerful than sex. And when I did, I discovered Islam and became a Muslim. I mean, that's great. That's a beautiful story. (laughs) And it reminds me of, you know, uh, Rumi. This is one of my favorite stories. lines in Rumi, just images. He says, Jesus was on his donkey and the donkey was drunk on barley and Jesus was drunk on God. And this is like the way I think of the uliya is that in other other words, they're saying just upgrade your intoxicants, like (laughs) get intoxicated on God, because once you do that, you'll see that all the pleasures that you can enjoy in this world, they pale in comparison. And that's why you know, you can't call someone away from something without replacing it with something better. Yeah. And so you can't just say, oh, it's all, you know, 
the, the dunya and it's all bad and it's all haram, this and that. Well, give them something sweeter. Yeah. Give them something more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Give them something that elevates them and actually awakens a taste that they hadn't had access to. And I think that's why, for me, it's beautiful that, you know, if you look at your book about awliya and saintly men and women, then you have this book, which, you know, so they they relate to each other in that. Like, it's mm-hmm. you're not just saying, you know, it's not just about leaving something, but it's about actually turning to something that awakens you to something far greater and vaster. Yeah, at the beginning, it's an intuitive thing. I mean, mm-hmm. people generally don't have some huge spiritual open, opening, like, you know, some like a vision of, uh, from William Blake or something right. of angels. It, it usually doesn't happen that way. Uh, but it's an intuitive thing. You, you just know that there's something else. You know that there's a, there's, there's an unseen reality. And it's what we were talking about, uh, uh, offline. Um, you know, I mean, I, I had an experience where I wanted something and I got it. Uh, and it was quite dramatic and it's in the book. So, Anyone who's interested could read the story, but it was one of the, the the points in my life where I realized God exists. God is immediate. You know that I wanted something, and seconds later I got exactly what I wanted, which was a little bit more than I bargained for, but I did get it. And um, you know there are m- many stories uh, that uh, that are like that, where someone. I mean, there's a great story of a man on, in a caravan, and he, you know, when you're on a caravan, it's very boring, and you have a lot of time to think. And he was, like, imagining this incredible meal of lamb and, you know, rice and beautiful meat and everything. And suddenly, his caravan is beset by bandits, and they they... They take everybody, they steal all their money, they beat them, they, you know, they, they tie them up, they, they're, they're going to use them as hostages or maybe kill them. You know, and they're in the middle of the desert, and then suddenly the Ottoman troops come and sweep down and rescue them and take them to a tent, and there's this sheikh in the tent, and they sit down, and there's exactly the meal that this guy was, was you know, sort of fantasizing about, and the sheikh said, you see what happens when you want something, you know, you see what Allah does to you, you know. So it's like you have to be careful of what you want. So part of the process is 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 changing your wants. And that's part of tawbah, is that you change. It's not just you, you stop what you're doing because you see that it's consequential. And if you don't see it, people don't do it, you know, they, they won't do it. Um, life is consequential, and there's a reason why things are, are forbidden or haram, or you know, um, and it's it's for your own benefit. I mean, Allah doesn't need us. Allah doesn't need us to do tawbah. Allah wants us to do tawbah because of what you said, because Allah loves His creation, and it runs by love. But he doesn't need it. We, you can continue. You keep doing whatever you're going to do, you know, and and then see what happens. 
So, um, and, the, you know, it's very hard sometimes when you read Al-Ghazali, he's very, very harsh, very fierce about the consequences of wrong action, of sinning, and so on. But the, he's, he's harsh about it be, out of compassion, because he wants people to stop doing what they're doing, because it's, there, there are consequences to it that we have to... But on the other hand... If you haven't gone through that, you will never have that kind of compassion. You have to understand that people, you know, people, you know, people sin. They they do sin, and we all sin. We all do wrong actions, and then we have to make tawbah. And there's many shiuk that believe that once you have made tawbah, once you've stopped, then the action disappears. That you no longer have that it's not it's it's erased from your wrong action. Also, you know there's this you know, the, a, a great dhikrullah that was given by Rasulullah in a hadith where he said if you recite la ilaha illallah wahduhu la sharika la lahu al mulku wa lahu al hamdu yuhi wa yumit wa huwa al hayu la yamut. In the marketplace, if you recite it out loud, Allah erases one million sins, writes one million good actions, and builds you a palace in paradise. That's either true or it's not true. You know, if it's a hadith and it's a sahih hadith, if it's true, then it's true. So what I used to do is when I was living in, uh, in Dubai, I would go to Dubai Mall, which is the largest mall in the world. And I, I have, there was nothing I wanted in that place, but I'd just walk around and say very loud because no one, no one pays any attention to anybody. I would recite that dhikr very loud because I have lots of lo- wrong actions that you know I need to have erased. And... Uh, so I used to get some, I hopefully some benefit out of that. But Allah, we have so many uh, chances to make tawbah and to and to and to seek forgiveness and to have our wrong actions erased and 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 replaced by good actions. And so that, I'm hoping that people will take heart and. and so when uh, when can people expect to find the book? How's it? How is it in the process of writing? Uh, well, it's taking me longer. Uh, one of the reasons it's taking longer is that I've visited Africa a couple of times, South Africa, and have I, I've been very moved by the conversions of of Africans in the township areas, very poor people, uh, and also um, in the Gambia, in Guinea-Bissau, there, there are, you know, mass conversions of people. And I, I don't understand this, to be honest. Mm-hmm. It's, but I've seen it, and it's very moving. And I don't, but I, I still have a hard time getting my head around, you know, 1,000 people converting without being cynical about it. And I don't think that there... I, I think it's, a, it's, it's very real. Uh, but I, I have a chapter that I'm working on, so... I don't think I'll be able to finish the book completely until the first quarter of next year. And then it'll take some time to get it, you know, typeset and finished. But it's moving. I have probably about 
80% of the book done now. Mm-hmm. It's taken a lot longer. The, the first book I wrote in two weeks, mm-hmm. uh, so it was easy. It was easy. It, but it took, it took a number of years to get it out because mm-hmm. uh, my designer was busy and mm-hmm. you know, other, other things intervened. But um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how, what the response for the book is, and I'm hoping that it's, it's useful. You know, that's, we don't do these things, you know, for any kind of worldly benefit. Mm-hmm. It's just to try to make, you know, help people as much as we can. And then I know you're also working recently, you're in London, you just got back, um, and you're working with Peter Sanders on a project. Maybe you could talk about that, because that's more oh, yeah. immediate. This is, this is, well, uh, in, the project is Meetings with Mountains, and... Um, uh, Peter is one of my oldest and dearest friends, and he's been, for me, a great inspiration, his, his work as a photographer and as a friend. He's, he's very, very pure-hearted, which is why he has been able to photograph um, many people who have never, ever consented to be photographed before. And so we have a, a record, a visual record, of some of the great... Um, saints of of uh, of our of our uh, tradition, and um, it's taken him about twenty years to get this the book together, and it's in its final stages. And we were, you know, we needed we need to raise funds for um, publication for the final because it's an expensive project. Any any visual book is 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 costly to do, and. Um, so we we've managed to do that. We did this through LaunchGood, and it was uh, a successful campaign. So we have not all, but most of the uh, the funds we need to to see the you know the the book through to uh, uh, to um, publication. And so that we've been working on that, and that's a that's an incredible um, effort. It's a, it's a great effort, and it's very beautiful. And the way that the book is now evolved and, and developed is it's a it's a personal it's his personal journey. So you you enter into his world as a photographer. So he talks about what it was like um, photographing these people, and sometimes he, he he would only sit for you know half an hour. With, with some of these people, it's not that he knew them intimately, but the you know it goes back to the the the, the dream that I recounted to sit with a wali Allah for as long as it takes to milk a goat, boil an egg, or you could add take a photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, he he's benefited from that, and I and I believe that he's been able to do what he's done. No one in history has ever done this. Uh, to the extent that he's done. Uh, Roland and Sabrina Michaud, who are great, great photographers, they're, you know, master photographers, they've done this, uh, they've done a a book on the dervishes, uh, which was apparently their least successful book. But it was, it was a sort of random photographs. It wasn't as, as focused on, on men who were, of really high spiritual standing. So their book was beautiful, but this book is unique because no one's ever done this before, ever. And no one ever will because it's a, it's a nearly 50-year 
project that he's been on. And uh, so it's very, it's, it's going to be a great book. And, and we were encouraged by the response to the book uh, when we launched this, uh, this uh, crowdfunding campaign. We both didn't really think that it, we thought it would, so we would raise some money and, you know, it would sort of move, go along for a month or something and maybe, maybe raise the money. But we were able to raise most of the funds within seven days, you know, which was a, a sign that people really are interested in, in, in having the book and, 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 learning from it and and it's it's worth it's worth doing the other thing that we're planning to do is to spin off monographs on individual shiyu uh, these these have been written by various contributors including sheikh hamza and, and um, mustafa al-badui uh, but um, we've taken them out uh, of the book because it's just cluttered the the the, the book it's just one too many things. So what we'll do is, after the publication of the book, we'll start um, releasing monographs with beautiful photographs and then more detailed, you know, like biographies of some of these these great saints, like uh, uh, Ahmed Mashur al-Haddad and, and uh, um, some of the others I'm not remembering. But, beautiful. Yeah. So they're going to be like photographs that you could, and then with their biography. Well, there will be monographs. In other words, little, you know, almost pamphlet-like mm. books, small books okay. that people can have. And it's, you know, that gives a background for like Muhammad ibn Habib, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the notable shayukh that um, uh, are in the book, mm-hmm. but with more detailed biographical information. Because mainly... The book is it's not it doesn't contain much in, in the way of biography. It's more of his experience with these these people and what it was like for him. And it makes it it it, it makes for a very you you it sort of enter into a world. And so it's not very academic in that way. It's it's really visual, and and it's just getting a sense of what it was like to get to these places and photograph someone like Murabat al Hajj who lives in the middle of nowhere, you know, in, in this lunar landscape. Mm. And this, this incredible, you know, being uh, who's had so much impact on, mm. on so many people through Sheikh Hamza and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and other people who've come from him. Uh, <clears throat> so it's, it, you know, we'll, we'll focus on the biographies of these people and who they were and so on, which I think is a valuable thing. They, they do exist the biographies, but um, uh, they're scattered around. So we thought, you know, if we can, if we can do that, and then the other thing we're thinking of doing is a is a, a documentary based upon the photographs. If we, well, again, we need to get funding for that, mm-hmm. but um, you know, so people have to understand that neither of us are have lots of money. I mean, we're just ordinary people. We, yeah. Well, but I think, and this is really important because you know, I think in the popular consciousness of, of Western people, you know, there's a sense of, you know, if you want to say an enlightened master, people are going to think of perhaps a uh, an Indian guru in the mountains or, or, or a Zen 
monk meditating, but the concept of, of sanctification, of transformation, of enlightened masters coming out of the Islamic tradition, unfortunately, it's not the first thing people think about when they think of Islam, mm-hmm. most people. And so, and unfortunately, even Muslims themselves. Mm-hmm. And so just to highlight that, you know, that these are the fruits of the tree, that, mm-hmm. that this is where it leads. And I think in our yeah. first conversation, we discussed that a bit. Yeah, I mean, when you sit with people who, for a long period of time, who don't get angry, you know, who have no personal stake, who have no discernible ego invested in anything, this is um, a revelatory. This is this awakens you to something else. And it's something that kind of, sinks in after a while. I mean, you, sometimes you, you, don't, you don't immediately pick up on these things. Um, but they're all the same. Uh, they have different, they look different. They have different qualities. But the one common thread is that they don't, they don't have ego. And uh, they, they've, over, they've, they've subdued the ego. The ego isn't, isn't, isn't there. So they're not idiosyncratic in that way. They're, they're, they're kind, they're patient, they're tolerant. And the teaching, the shayuk, the, the, the teacher, the ones who have uh, a spiritual authority to, to teach and, and guide people on a spiritual path, uh, are the servants of, the, of people. They, they, all they do is serve people. I mean, I, I noticed this with uh, Sheikh Ahmed Mashur al-Haddad. Habib al-Haddad was, you know, in his 80s, he had children, grandchildren, probably great-grandchildren. He had an, a decent life, and yet he was down every morning serving people, advising them, putting up with people like me and, and uh, you know, other people who, you know, full of, you know, neurotic anxieties and all kinds of things like, like that. And yet they, they, they existed, they served us because that's what their role was. They were there for us. And they, you know, I, I, it's in my other book, but I, I mentioned this to say it, Omar Abdullah. I said, I don't know how Habib can stand being around someone like me. And he said, someone like Habib only wants to be alive because of someone like you. Otherwise, he'd rather be with his Lord. Mm. And that's the way these people are. Um, Muri Hashem al-Balghiti, who's my teacher and master in in Morocco, he told me recently that Sidi Muhammad Bulkurshi, who was his teacher and master and who was a great Moroccan saint, he said, if it's a choice between death and being a sheikh, I choose death. And there's a misunderstanding about that. People think, oh, wow, you know, that's, that's something to aspire to. No, that's a horrible burden mm. that people are, it's forced on people. It's yeah. not something that someone stands up and claims that they're going to be, you know, that they are the sheikh. It never happens, ever, ever. Anyone who does that is suspect because they don't do, they don't do it. It's forced on them. They have to do it. It's a and heavy burden. It's a f- terrible burden because you're suddenly, you know, and it usually happens to people when they're when they're fairly elderly, you know. So it's an even worse burden. It d- doesn't happen. It's uh, there are young 
people who have reached these these stations, but in many cases it's, it's people who are you know in, in advanced in years they've they've had this happen. So it's really you know it's it's something very special to be around these people and what what uh, Peter has done has has captured these people on film and it's 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 extraordinary. But it's taken a long time uh, because. It's very you know on the you can't register baraka doesn't register on film you know you can't um, it, it's very it's very unusual you know to be able to capture so it's capturing something beautiful in the eyes mm. you know something but also you have to you have to contextualize it you have to sort of let people know who these people were. Or they start looking like, you know, very nice old, old men. men. Yeah, you know. Well, and that's I, I like what you said because I mean we're in Istanbul right now, and you go into these to these old mosques, and you know, mashallah, and they say, uh, you know, Hazrat so and so, Hazrat, you know, in this mm-hmm. way, and it's really beautiful. Hazrat, literally, it's Hazrat, it's presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 that's the thing that really strikes you when you meet a wali is like that there's a there's a tangible experience of being in their presence right. that they are a presence actually they're like a they're like a constant they're like a you know a sun and yeah. the things are orbiting around them and you're in the orbit all of a sudden yeah. and so of course that's hard to capture on film but i think it's beautiful that, that they have this this term in turkish yeah. version and you see in, yeah. in urdu as well hazrat yeah. You know, for Sheikh. No, it's 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 and it's true that the, there is a there is a, a palpable uh, presence. Uh, but of course, if if you don't, if your heart is closed, mm-hmm. um, if you're distracted, you can miss miss all of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abu al Morsi he said that it's harder to find a, a, a friend of God or Wali Allah than it is to find Allah, because we know Allah through his perfections. But how hard is it to know someone who eats as you eat and, and drinks as you drink and sleeps as you sleep? Because they're people. They're not supernatural beings. They're just people who have subdued this, the self, and then something else has taken over. Uh, and you know, the other thing that's very important for Muslims to, to, to understand is that you cannot have these kinds of knowledges without loving the Prophet. I mean, the, the Sahaba used to say, may my mother and father be sacrificed for you. What does that mean? You know, that's an extraordinary thing to say. But that comes from absolute passionate love. And uh, what's happened is that, that the fundamentalists who've dominated the religious discourse for the last 40 or 50 years <clears throat> have made us believe that the Prophet, والسلام, was a historical figure. Um, but there's actually another dimension to, to the Prophet Muhammad and prophecy. And this is what we call al-midad. It's, it's the... the, the the ineffable, the the unseen dimension transmission, of, uh, yeah. of transmission from person to person, and that the prophet is still a living presence, yes. 
Um, he's not alive, but he's a living presence. He's alive in in <clears throat> in the in the world of spirits. And uh, Muli Hashem said to me, he turned to me once, and he said, "You know, we don't die." And what he meant was that the people of Dikr Allah, whose hearts are open, <clears throat> don't die. Because there's you there and and Ibn al Habib said the people of dhikr do not die and the people of forgetfulness are already dead. So there's a there's it's it's a different level. So people need to understand how important the love of the Prophet is and and learning and I asked my teacher you know how do you how do you increase the love of the Prophet? He said by Salatun Nabi. So it's a very simple thing. Everything <clears throat> comes back to dhikr Allah. Everything comes back to to remembering Allah and, and remembering and, and blessing the Prophet and asking for forgiveness and uh, glorifying Allah, you know. Well, that's a beautiful note to end on. Okay. Khair for your time. Thank you for listening to Path and Present Podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so in a few ways. One is word of mouth. Um, people hear about the podcast mostly from people like you who listen and like it and say, I know someone who would connect with this, or who would feel this, or who would enjoy this subject matter. So continue to share with your family and friends. Secondly, you can subscribe, rate, and comment um, on the iTunes page of Path and Present. Subscribing means that the podcast, will, each episode will come directly to you when we release it. And rating and commenting means that it will grow and uh, come up in the iTunes rankings, which will allow it to be uh, available and uh, seen by more people. And then lastly, you can support financially on Patreon. Patreon is a site which allows people to give a small amount monthly to support um, art or any type of content. And we have a Path and Present page on Patreon. The link is on our SoundCloud page, SoundCloud slash Path and Present. And you'll find the Patreon link there. And yeah, you can support there. We're greatly appreciative of it. Uh, I guess lastly, lastly, keep us in your prayers, your positive thoughts, and your moments of remembrance. And thank you for tuning in and being part of the global Path and Present family. One love.